Kyle, thanks so much for joining Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we are welcomed by Dr. Will Davies, who is the founder and director of the Chill Project by Allegheny Health Network. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure to be here. And we had this interview scheduled, and the timing just could not have ended up to be more uh, applicable. I don't want to say perfect, because it's certainly not. But the project that you work on, the CHILL project, is focused on mental health in schools of students K through 12 through a three-tiered program. And whenever events like this, the tragedy that happened this week in Texas, what do you think as somebody who's dealing in this field? Does this, you know, do you look at this and think we must focus on mental health? Just what are your, your thoughts and how to move forward from here? What are students saying? What are teachers saying? Yeah, we've, we've definitely seen a pretty strong reaction in the schools that we serve. There's been modified lockdowns, a lot of communication between administrators and faculty and how to speak to the students and providing support groups. We've seen definitely an uptick um, in the conversations within our spaces with students around this topic. Um, and something that I think can be very useful uh, from our program standpoint, you know, we have a space in, in every school that we serve called a chill room, which is a designated space for kids to come and, uh, you know, discuss what's happening in their lives, their concerns, what they're stressed about, you know, share their emotional distress, learn some skills and apply those evidence-based coping skills so they can get back to class and be academically successful because it all ties together, emotional well-being and the academic side of things. And when you have that space, it helps a very limited and stretched out um, from a bandwidth perspective, school, faculty, administration, counselors, who are really just firefighting a lot all day long. And that's what we see. Um, the acuity has just gone through the roof. And the school has, a lot of the schools we serve have become uh, very reactive to mental health concerns because they just don't have the bandwidth because of the structure of the way of the school. You know, things haven't been updated in 30 or 40 years in a lot of cases, and it doesn't really serve the, the school community well. And so what our spaces do, and we have, you know, multiple tiers within that space, but we allow students to have that space that they can start to form a community where they feel like they can be heard. They can start to develop trust with one another. We involve teachers in these spaces where they start to, um, you know, uh, can communicate with students better. And when you start to have that sense of community and that sense of trust, you have a place where this communication can happen and folks start to feel a little bit more heard in these spaces. Now, I can't say specifically this would have prevented anything, but they certainly can have a space where they can be heard and concerns can be addressed very much so in advance. And we've seen that time and time again, particularly, particularly recently, where we have very, very dangerous, deadly concerns that are coming into our spaces. And we can get those addressed before someone harms themselves or harms someone else. How does that space, when you said dangerous, deadly concerns coming into the space, it's, uh, you could almost, right, right now, you can almost see it happening. So can you tell us a little bit more about how that generally manifests for you? Uh, how does, how does uh, someone who's overseeing this program detect that? And then how do you diffuse that? 
Absolutely. So, you know, we see a wide range of uh, concerns in these spaces. So anywhere from a little bit of test anxiety on one side of it, um, peer conflict, um, but very seriously on, you know, on the other side, you know, we get some pretty serious concerns where students are, you know, coming in and um, expressing that they want to harm themselves to the point of wanting to kill themselves um, and possibly harming other folks and killing other people. So, you know, we can, through these trusting relationships that we build with the students and with the faculty in, in the school, this becomes a space that uh, can really start to scratch the surface to get folks the care that they need in advance before something really tragic happens. So when you get those people coming in saying that they want to harm themselves or harm others, what do you do? What are the action steps that you're taking to help these people? So at that point, we have very strong communication with the schools and the administrators and the, and the counseling departments in the schools. And uh, we tend to lean on the crisis plan of the school at that time. So we make sure that the school is directly involved. We contact the parents. We make sure that, uh, you know, we follow through on our end with getting this uh, student to the hospital if needed, whether it's to an emergency room because they've harmed themselves or to a psychiatric facility um, in pre prevention of harming themselves later on or harming others. So we make sure we follow through and then sometimes we will actually go to the hospital and make sure that that happens and we can help facilitate, facilitate that and, and also their transition later on out of that place. Going to the school shooting that happened earlier this year, I think it was Michigan, that person also displayed disturbing behaviors before even the day of the event the parents were called in and if I'm remembering correctly the administrators suggested that they take the child home and the parents didn't so what do you do if you're encountering you know you're trying to do everything you can to help make this right what would you do is there a way to step in if you know this is a dangerous situation and the parents are refusing yeah, and, and we have run across that before, and that's an unfortunate reality that sometimes happens. And so we there are certain processes that we can rely on, like a, what's called like a 302 or a voluntary involuntary process um, where we can uh, work with the school. The school kind of handles that communication and we um, you know, can get the student to the hospital like uh, via police or ambulance at that time. Um, but in the, in the entire process, you know, we have to understand that the parents are very distressed and that they're also not, the, the line of thinking and judgment might not be as clear as it could be because obviously their kid is, you know, trying to harm themselves or harm others. And so we try to take that into consideration as well and really make sure we respect the parent in that decision-making process. But ultimately, you know, if we feel that this student is going to be a risk to themselves or others that we have to then, uh, you know, take a formalized legal action such as that. I find it I find it really interesting. Well, you've mentioned several times the uh, importance of the relationship that you're developing uh, with the teachers and then with the students, and I find it interesting that that someone who's at that level of really wanting to commit that intent of harm to themselves or to others is yet still reaching out for help. It's a kind of almost like a plea that they're reaching out to you. And so it gives you a little window 
in which you can intervene. Um, do you generally find that most students are just looking for that help? And if they just had that trusted person they could reach out to, then potentially we could diffuse, you know, a lot of this? I think you hit that nail right on the head. I think a lot of students are just looking for that person and the way things are structured, sometimes that person doesn't exist in a school and kids have become so socially isolated um, recently in particular that it has become a concern where, um, you know, the kids aren't even talking with one another, let alone, let alone the adults in the school sometimes. And so uh, any connection that we can make for these students, any trusting adult relationship, like the adults in the building have to come around the students and provide that kind of a loving and nurturing compassion and environment for them to be able to open up so we can get them help. Is that a challenge in itself? Because a lot of times, and again, maybe I'm I'm off base on this, but it seems like a lot of times these people are isolated. Maybe they're a little bit more alone than other people. They're displaying things that might not be popular behavior, you know, scary behaviors or interests. So are people resistant? to trying to get close to them because it's scary? Sometimes that happens, you know, you, um, but what happens is often you pick up on some of the warning signs and we work very closely with school counselors and administrators. You know, kids have the, the ones that are, that are cutting class, their, their grades have dropped dramatically, they're having truancy issues and the counselors do a great job um, connecting us with those students or we connect the students with the counselors and we work together uh, to identify who those students are. And, and the schools tend to, they, they have a pretty good idea of who those students are. And then uh, they can use us to help lean into those situations. And through, it takes time sometimes, but we you know, often create very uh, caring and nurturing relationships with those students and then they open up. Are you a next level from the counselors? Because it sounds like the school still has counselors within their school, and then they lean on you for additional support. That's that's correct. So we work directly with the counselors. Like one of the things I always say, like we're not there to take anybody's job. Uh, we're there just to help be support for the students and also for the teachers as well. And that's something that the counselors often don't have time to do at all, you know, to be there for their peers. And um, you know, sometimes the, 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 their peers really need the really need the assistance in there. In the off hours, they tend to be lining up with the counselors as well. A few interesting uh, points that uh, that you're making, which are kind of all running around in my head right now. So I'm going to see if maybe they come out in in some sort of a coherent fashion. Um, I'm honestly very uh, fascinated by by the. Uh, the thoughts you have around trust. Uh, you, you're mentioning the trust that you need to build with the students, uh, with the teachers. Um, and you're and, it, it, and on the one hand, so I'm thinking uh, the schools are somehow not able to do this on their own. So what's sort of missing, what's preventing them from doing it? Then that makes me think, well, then how come you folks are able to do it? And so what's that mechanism and methodology? And then I'm thinking, well, then is it, are we always sort of, you know, going to be in a position where we got to bring in outside help to do this? So I hope those kind of points kind of make sense. And maybe we'll, at least whichever ones do, maybe you can help us tease out how this whole trust thing works or doesn't work. 
Yeah, those are great points. And I do believe that I understood what you said there. So the, you know, there's, there's a lot of structural issues that have been around in schools for a long time. Um, and it, it that comes down sometimes to priorities of the school board, of the superintendent. Some folks understand the connection of emotional well-being and academic well-being. Like they are totally aligned. Some folks don't see the connection at all. And so sometimes depending on where we go, um, you know, we run into that. And so we try to illuminate them with the data behind this, that these things are connected. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've been in school board meetings where, you know, I'm asking for a few thousand dollars for additional services and, you know, they're giving me a hard time and, but they have just signed off on $5 million for new football turf. You know, so there's a priority sometimes in different school districts, like, you know, sports are important. But, you know, if you want the kids to be able to play the sports, you also have to take care of them at the same time. So I think it's evolving. And I think the uh, pandemic, one of the silver linings is, is that uh, the stigma around mental health is starting to come down a bit. People are talking about it more and the priorities are starting to shift. And we're noticing that across the board and there's a lot more openness to talk about these kind of things than you know being behind in the shadows as we used to be. It's very, very intense and um, really difficult. Uh, and so, uh, Stephanie, you know, with my final question, I'm wondering, you and I were talking about this earlier, you know, with your school system in terms of services that they're thinking of providing or not providing. And it's, a, it's a, maybe a smaller piece of the whole equation, but I just wonder if you would be open to kind of sharing I cannot overstate the importance of people having access to mental health care and caring for students in that way, because mental health is health. It's just as the way that you'd go to a gym to maintain your blood pressure or your cholesterol. Mental health is health. And to not support that or not fund that is an absurd decision. Thanks for, for answering that. Um, I guess I'll turn to you. Uh, do you have a final question for Will? What drove you to start this program? What were you seeing? What happened in your own experience or piqued your interest in this field that led you to develop the CHILL program? The seed for this program came out of some lived experiences that I had prior to developing this, where I was in two different, you know, helping serve two different school communities. One was a school with very high community violence and trauma, um, very uh, kind of a low SES community where um, that year five students had died from community violence. And walking into the schools after the fifth one, it was like walking into a funeral. And you can only imagine like these administrators and teachers, this is like losing five babies of theirs. Right. And the, the impact and I saw the impact on teachers and something that I think is also important to stress here is the, the health and wellness of the teachers and how that directly connects with these students. And if we're not addressing that, which is something that we also do, um, you know, then we're selling the kids short with their success because we need these teachers to stick around. They, they, the, the burnout is through the roof. The turnover is through the roof. We're going to have a shortage. People are retiring early. And so we need to take care of them as well. And so that's an important point of this. And it, and it also helps with the buy-in process as well to talk about their lived experience. And then, so I, you know, I was in that one school and then the same year I was in a different school 
that was kind of on the other side of the spectrum, very high socioeconomic status, um, you know, didn't really have a, you know, community violence, but four or five kids lost their lives to suicide that year. And so it dawned on me like, you know, two different schools are across the, the spectrum here. The pathways are different, but the end result is the same, which the students have died. We have this kind of culture of death that's happening in our schools. And as healthcare providers, what are we doing to work directly with school districts to disrupt the pathway that leads to death of the students? And that's the underlying passion for this, is to bring life to these communities, to, get, to make sure these kids are graduating and becoming very productive citizens of the world and, and, and staying alive and uh, redirecting these pathways of death. And so that really, you know, it's rather morbid, but that is the underlying passion for what we're doing here. And that's really what seeded this and then dug into the literature around it, what the best practices are, what the other what other programs in the country look like and develop the structure based off of that. What's the success been like since the implementation of these programs? So we we started in 2019 with two schools as a pilot, just to see if it would work. Um, and we're, you know, in over 20 now. And what we have seen is very high utilization of services with increased access for students in these in these schools dramatically some schools over four or five hundred percent increase uh, they really need these services um, we have seen uh, teachers utilizing the skills that we use we've seen a statistically significant drop in the perceived level of stress that students exhibit uh, from before and after our interventions going back into classrooms and what's really important to note is we have seen a drop in students being placed outside of the school in, in different levels of care, but also more importantly, what I know districts like to see is students not being uh, placed out into approved private schools like they used to be. It's an incredible cost to the district, and it is something that, you know, we want these kids in school being with their peers and not in an outside setting. And so we're able to help through our interventions keep these students mm -hmm. in school as well. You're trying to disrupt the pathways that lead to death. And yeah. so is there any evidence in these 20 schools that that's starting to happen? I think so, you know, right now we have the anecdotal evidence where we know that there are students who are coming into our spaces that are planning to kill themselves or harm other people. And we know that we have diverted that pathway for those students. So for me, that's very successful. And this is more than just a handful. There's a lot of these cases. And uh, connecting with their families, getting them situated with appropriate services. If they need medication, we can do that for them too. And so that to me is like the feedback that we're actually disrupting that kind of outcome. It's not a full safe um, way of doing it. You know, we've had kids who we've lost in some of our schools, but I think there would have been a lot more if we weren't there. Thank you so much for sharing this conversation. Again, the timing couldn't have been more applicable to have you on here talking about this. And I appreciate the work that you're doing to help serve these students. Appreciate the opportunity to chat with you both and share our story. Thank you, Will. It's uh, very inspiring. Really appreciate your work. Thank you. And thank you all for watching. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.